The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to the program this Monday morning. Here are your headlines. Well, President Trump says he is not looking for war as he ratchets up economic pressure on Tehran. With major new sanctions expected later today, his envoy to Tehran telling me exclusively that the administration is still looking for talks. It is going to deny the regime the revenue that it needs to run a violent and expansionist foreign policy. But it's also designed to bring them back to the negotiating table. So ultimately, we would like to have a new deal that addresses Iran's regional aggression, the missile program, and the nuclear program. Turkey's opposition party wins again in Istanbul. The rerun for the post of mayor is a major blow to the ruling AK party and President Erdogan. China says both Washington and Beijing should be open to compromise in upcoming G20 trade talks as more Chinese tech companies are added to the US blacklist. Mr. Trump telling NBC's Meet the Press he never threatened to demote Fed Chair Jerome Powell, but claims he has the power to do so if he wants. I'd be able to do that if I wanted, but I haven't suggested that. That's I mean, not a threat, that's just a reminder no, that you're banned. No, no, I have the right to do that, but I haven't said that. Uh, what he's done is 50 billion a month in quantitative tightening. That's ridiculous. Daimler delivers a profit warning as higher provisions around its diesel vehicles choke the German carmaker's 2019 earnings outlook. Oh, happy Monday, everybody. I hope you had a lovely weekend and ready for five days of rumbustuous trading as well. We had a really, really good rally on these markets. Ignore Friday's action. That was just everyone going, <gasps> after what was an enormous week of buying. Buying everything. Buying safe havens, buying bonds, buying equities. Uh, and therein lies the issue as well. Are things so good that you can buy everything at the moment? Or are things so bad you can buy everything at the moment? That's not as stupid a question as it sounds, really, as well. Because... Cut, cut a long story short, this is about the power put for the market, isn't it? This is about pricing in 25, maybe 50 basis points for the market as well, and hence the cheaper money, and hence it can flow into buybacks, and hence uh, the cost of, of credit is easing a little bit for those corporate bond markets, and hence that old canary in the coal mine uh, won't be such a problem potentially for the equity market as well. So why are people buying safe havens? Yeah? Thought about that one? If things are so good and you can buy everything that's great and we're risk on, why is gold trading at highs since September 2013? Why are utilities trading at record levels as well? Why are people still buying bond markets as well so aggressively? Yeah? Think about it. So have a look at some of these crosses as well. And, and is the dollar losing its power as a, as a safe haven? I think that question's been raised in the FT today as well. Look, even the pound. The pound's at 127.50. Had 125 handle, challenging lower uh, late last week and uh, in the week before because there's concerns that Boris Johnson might lead us to a hard Brexit in the UK on October 31st. But even the pound rallying against the dollar as well. Is there a disjointed market? Is there disjointed markets in oil? Have a look at this. 
How do you trade geopolitics? Another one of my questions as well. A lot of you there should, should be kind of concerned about some of the geopolitics. I mean, look what's going on in the Middle East. Real concerns there. Look what's going on uh, in Turkey as well. Should we be concerned about a destabilization of the presidency there and what the ramifications are? Again, how do you trade it? Well, it looks like you buy everything. Look at Brent and WTI last week as well. I'll give you a number. Hang on, here we go. WTI, what do you think it was up last week? A couple of percent? Three, four, five? Nine percent. Nine percent we rallied on WTI last week. On what? on lower global demand, on real concern about the auto industry, on real concern about the US economy so much that the Fed is now potentially going to be cutting uh, twice, maybe July, maybe September, maybe October, maybe two of the above as well. So things are so bad out there that the Fed's going to be cutting. And that's boosting, of course, on the knee jerk on the inverse. But actually, are we really worried about supply of oil through the Hormuz Straits? Yeah, maybe you are. Maybe that's a big issue. But you're, what you're saying is the Fed put is more important. The, 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 actually, the global trade concerns is lesser. And actually, the knee jerk plus the geopolitical concerns is affecting this. Gold, look at that, 1402. 1402. I tell you, we were trading 1268 about three weeks ago. I remember the print. Amazing. OK, let's move on. Asian indices, they're rallying as well. Well, they have done over the last few weeks. Now, Hang Seng's up a little bit. Nikkei's up a little bit uh, and pretty much flat on the AS600 and the Shanghai Composite. Well, opening calls to European markets again. What's the FTSE? 7,400. The DAX, 12,200. DAX is interesting. Have you seen the, the whining we're getting from the auto manufacturers? We'll come to this one a little bit later on as well. The new warning from Daimler. What are they worried about? They're worried about diesel financial allegations and fines and regulatory issues there. It's all legacy stuff as well. And maybe the, the new generation of electric vehicles that are being lauded out of the German auto industry, not quite ready for mass production yet, or certainly not mass profits. Uh, FTSE may have called down 35 points. So my point is, are things so good that we can... Morning, Julianne. How are you? Nice you. You've had a touch of uh, bad throat as well, so I hope you're okay for three hours of me and Jeff. Don't <laughs> well. worry, you won't get a word in edgeways. Um, but uh, morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. Uh, you won't good get a word in edgeways. No, no. Like, so, so things so good or so yeah. bad, why are we buying safe havens? Why are we buying bonds so aggressively? Why are we buying gold so aggressively? And yeah. what about geopolitics as uh, well? So, uh, um, two answers. Uh, one is the glib answer. And yes. the glib answer is uh, fear of missing out. Yes. Um, since the GFC, you have been rewarded by owning everything. So buy everything and just sit and hold everything. And the argument, as you know, is that the central banks have got your back. You'll be fine. Interest rates continue to tumble, which will support risk assets. The other argument is contradictions. And you've got contradictions everywhere. And uh, the Bank of America Merrill Lynch data on equity inflow, um, high numbers, highest number since March, $16.69 billion worth, encouraging for those who want to take on risk here. But as you point out, uh, we've got Bitcoin now, 11,000. We've got uh, gold through 1,400. Financial assets on this program. Well, yeah, um, everything at the moment seems to be a financial <laughs> asset that you can monetize. But the the one number that I saw in the data that I looked at, which I thought was most scary, was um, courtesy of uh, Bloomberg, channeled through DataTrek. Thirteen trillion dollars now of global debt has negative yield, and a quarter of that is actually in the corporate debt market. So people are prepared to get nothing to you give their money. The a quarter of that is in the corporate debt market, which is absolutely <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> so you ask yourself the question, in history, do you get paid a better return as rates continue to fall and fall into negative? Well, DataTrek have done the work, fortunately, and they say, just look at Japan. Have you done well in equities from Japan or in debt? 
no, you have not. And if that is a, um, a, a, a symbol or a message about what the future holds for us, then the points you made at the wall, I think, were fascinating and um, everybody should be worried. I think a lot comes down also to expectations into the G20. And I know, Steve, last week you were talking about how the market reacted so positively to confirmation that Trump and Xi were going to meet. But there are meetings that take place all around the G20. So is that optimism really founded? Uh, and is it really that meaningful that they're going to talk? But I think that's going to be a big determinant of where the market goes next if we do actually see concrete steps uh, agreed at that meeting. Look, you're right. It's all about the Sherpas. It's all about the Sherpas. The Sherpas and the Lighthizers and the, and the trade ministers and the commerce ministers and the lawyers. This is what it's about. With all due respect to Mr. Xi and Mr. Trump, we know they get on. We know that they are close friends. I don't know if they're besties. I can't remember if Putin's best deal with who at the moment, what have you. But we know they're close. We, we don't need that. What we need is a deal. Assumption. What the world needs is a deal. And the other point about G20s is, I'm sorry, I've seen dozens of them. I've been to loads of them. You've been to loads of them. They don't often deliver much that's meaningful. Lots of lovely protestations, but they don't often deal much, uh, deliver much that's great. 2009 being the outlier. Yeah, how does that song go? What the world needs now <laughs> is love, sweet, sweet love. Because at the moment... I don't know anymore. Well, <laughs> well and, and, and let's move the story on here, um, because what we don't have a lot of at the moment is love on the geopolitical stage. Uh, Rabo Research putting up the line... Uh, what do we need to worry about? Is it the central banks being on their game or is it the geopolitics? Well, let's focus on the geopolitics. The US will unveil a series of additional sanctions against Iran later today, ramping up tensions between the two nations. President Trump announced the sanctions over the weekend, describing them as, quote, major. An Iranian foreign ministry spokesperson dismissed the impending sanctions as, quote, propaganda. That, according to, ironically state media. Uh, President Trump <laughs> has urged Tehran to engage in talks with Washington, telling NBC's Meet the Press there would be no prerequisite conditions. Cyber attacks launched by the US against Iran have not been successful, according to a tweet from Tehran's Information and Communications Technology Minister. Reports in the New York Times and the Washington Post say the U.S. launched a cyber attack on Thursday against an Iranian intelligence group believed to have been involved in the recent oil tanker attacks. Both reports, which cite multiple sources, say the attacks have been planned for weeks. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will visit Saudi Arabia and the UAE for discussions of intentions with Iran. Pompeo has said the talks will look at building a global coalition to deal with Tehran. The Secretary of State also warned the media against using false information provided by Iran as well. Well, Abu Dhabi is where we find Hadley. And Hadley, you could actually be anywhere in the region at the moment, from Istanbul to Abu Dhabi to who knows where, because there's so much going on at the moment as well. Can we connect, before you talk specifically about the Iran story, can we connect um, the concerns surrounding Turkey with what we're seeing elsewhere in the Middle East, or are they just completely separate stories? <laughs> They're separate and they're the same. I mean, you can make as many connections as you want, frankly, because remember, of course, that when it comes to Turkey and the rest of the region, they find themselves, at least for the moment, at odds with the Gulf Arab countries in so many respects, particularly over the situation with Qatar. Uh, we've seen them in bed with Iran when it comes to what's happening uh, with the situation in Syria as well uh, as as this broader question of political Islam itself. So when it comes to what's happened to Mr. Erdogan in this rerun of these Turkish elections, certainly you can... Um, 
I mean, you could probably judge this as a bit of a slap in the face. And most folks are tying it to the fact that we've seen the Turkish economy suffering and struggling so much over the last couple of years and a lack of direction, really, uh, from his administration. So certainly a slap in the face for Mr. Erdogan. But in terms of that broader uh, Middle East context, certainly it, it uh, helps the narrative um, that uh, when it comes to who's really running this region, um, it isn't going to be Mr. Erdogan anytime soon, at least in terms of the predominant power. Now, focusing on what we've been talking about over the last several days here in uh, the United Arab Emirates. That, of course, has been the downing of this U.S. drone. I thought it was very, very interesting in that interview with President Trump as well. He discussed the idea of a proportionate response. Uh, he said that 150 people dead was not the proportionate response to an unmanned drone being taken out by Iran. I had the chance to catch up in an exclusive interview with U.S. Special Representative on Iran, Brian Hook, and I asked him, where is the red line here? Listen in. We don't uh, announce the red lines, uh, I think, in the way that is sort of conventionally understood. Uh, I think uh, we take it day by day, but it's in the context of a very thoughtful and focused strategy. And that was put in place over a year ago by Secretary Pompeo. When the president got out of the Iran deal, we put in place a new Iran foreign policy that does a couple of things. It is going to deny the regime the revenue that it needs to run a violent and expansionist foreign policy but it's also designed to bring them back to the negotiating table. So ultimately, we would like to have a new deal that addresses Iran's regional aggression, the missile program, and the nuclear program. In order to get there, it's going to take pressure. And in order to get Iran to change its behavior, it's going to take a lot of pressure. So we're going to increase our sanctions on Iran. We're going to continue with this foreign policy. Um, Iran has a large body of threats to peace and security. We have matched that with a very strong and robust foreign policy. Iran doesn't like it, but it's the right way that we're going to restore deterrent. When Bob McNamara wrote The Fog of War, he talked about many, many years later traveling to Vietnam and understanding from his Vietnamese counterpart um, just the mind meld that was happening during the war. And he realized there was a massive disconnect between what Washington was thinking was happening in terms of a communist takeover mm -hmm. and what the Vietnamese, Vietnamese were thinking was actually happening. And that mm -hmm. for them was a civil war. Mm -hmm. And they said we would have fought China and other imperial powers to the very, very end. And that's mm -hmm. why we were fighting you. Does it worry you, given the lack of communication between Washington and Tehran right now, that we could be making a massive miscalculation in how we're addressing this? Well, our message to the Iranians has been exactly that. Do not miscalculate, because we will respond if we are attacked. And we, the president has made that very clear since September, when there were attacks on our embassy in Baghdad and on one of our diplomatic properties. So he's made it very clear that we will respond uh, if necessary. And so we have warned the Iranians not to miscalculate. And by putting in place, we've enhanced our force presence here in the region. And we think that has helped to restore deterrence. That doesn't mean that we have eliminated uh, the ability of Iran to conduct asymmetric attacks. But we have definitely helped to reestablish deterrence, and there's going to be more to come. Guys, you heard it right here in Abu Dhabi first. New sanctions are coming, and we do expect uh, more on that later today as Washington wakes up. Now, I think it's really interesting as well in that conversation that I had with Brian Hook. He was essentially talking about uh, oil prices as well. I asked him, I mean, when they're spiking up as much as 9%, um, doesn't the U.S. Uh, have cause for pause? And he essentially said, hey, they're still under 70. We're watching this very closely. You know, Secretary Pompeo is very much aware of what's happening uh, with the oil markets. And he essentially said to me, it's the Iranians who are 
driving up the price of oil. I also asked him about the security in the Strait of Hormuz, guys, and he said that this has got to be part of a broader effort. He talked about an international coalition, and he said that's definitely going to come up at the G20. Guys. Uh, excellent work there. Thank you very much indeed for that, Hadley. Let's get to Kaylin Birch, who is Global Economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Kaylin, is there a appetite uh, amongst G20 members, amongst allies, traditional allies of the United States, to form a coalition against Iran? <clears throat> I would say <clears throat> probably mixed appetite. Um, remembering, of course, the U.S. has moved away from its traditional allies. In the first two years of the Trump administration, we haven't seen a lot of cooperation amongst the U.S. and particularly Western Europe. We've seen really Western Europe being put on alert that the U.S. is looking to renegotiate its trade relationship and to step away from NATO. There's not been a lot of coalition building on any issue thus far. So it's difficult for the U.S. to now step in and say, this is our approach to the Middle East. Europe also wants to preserve the nuclear deal. But, but the U.S. has its allies, doesn't it? And anyone who follows the region, and you and Hadley know this better than anyone as well, that MBZ, MBS, and Benjamin Netanyahu, yeah. these are the key allies that the president's looking at. Do they need any other allies? No, potentially. Um, they could go ahead without Europe in this regard. <clears throat> of course, understanding that Europe is working, you know, in all kind of, for all intents and purposes, to try to preserve some stability around the nuclear deal. Um, but the question, as you rightly point out, is what is the risk within the region, particularly that UAE is going to be right on the firing line, on the Gulf of Oman, um, and clearly Saudi and Israel have kind of positioned themselves clearly against Iran and have just been waiting for U.S. administration to flip the switch. What's your assessment of the apparent pullback when it came to launching the strike mm. against Iran? Because... As I read that, it seemed to me a strategic error to make that public to the Iranians because doesn't that send a message that actually this is a president who isn't willing to take this to the next level? Hmm. I think that probably is a messaging error on the part of President Trump, who again is extremely frank, extremely direct, and probably speaks quickly and off the cuff to talk about pulling something back. He corrected himself afterwards or, or qualified slightly the language he used. And then we saw administration members also walking it back with Bolton saying, don't mistake prudence for weakness, um, to say that this was kind of a, a strategic judgment that we made, don't miscalculate and think that we are kind of going soft in this regard. But at the same time, the U.S. doesn't want to get into, and Trump has been very clear about this, doesn't want to get into an active war in the Middle East just as he's looking for re-election. Not to put it in such kind of basic terms, but it will be a concern weighing on him in 2016. He said he would keep the U.S. out of foreign wars, particularly in the Middle East, and he's ramping up his campaign launched just less than a week ago. Um, I mean, maybe this is not the right uh, parallel, but, but there does seem to be something of the Dr. Strangelove strategy <laughs> around this administration, that this guy is so crazy, he could do anything, right? And, and that seemed to have been walked back a little bit by this idea that, you know, uh, there would be deaths if the strike was launched, so he wasn't prepared to take that, that next step here. Mm. So we, we've, we've had this story of the cyber attack that both sides are arguing mm. was effective or not effective, as mm. it were. Do we then expect that war will be fought on many other fronts from here on in? It'll be trade sanctions, it'll be embargoes, it'll be um, a, a, a strategic encirclement through allies in the region. Definitely. Yeah, and how do the, the Iranians respond to that? 
Well, Iran is already on very, kind of very much on the back foot. They've gone through very difficult years during the previous round of sanctions, had a modest economic recovery in the years under the most recent nuclear deal. Um, but much of that growth was in the oil and gas sector, and it wasn't felt through other areas of the real economy. And we didn't see a diversification of the base of the economy that would allow kind of households to have strong income growth and kind of a lifting of all boats in Iran. That wasn't the case. So Iran is already in a very difficult position economically, and the government in the last year has seen its, its fiscal and export revenue slashed. So Iran was still exporting quite a lot of oil, not as much as it was in 2018, but at or around 10 to 15 million barrels per week, uh, just seaborne crude oil exports, in the first three months of the year when, this, when the sanctions waivers were in place. They're still exporting a little bit now, even now that the waivers are gone, but we're talking about nominal volumes of four to five million barrels a week, and half of that is just shuttled in domestic ports. So we can safely say that Iran's revenue from oil has been cut by at least two-thirds. So they're in a very dangerous economic position. So their right to kind of put on a strong face to try to get themselves out of this conflict, but they're not in a position to fight a war either. In terms of the their position when it comes to weakened revenues uh, from oil, I mean, Brian Hook there is saying that Iran is is purposely driving up the oil price, and that's part of their motivation for this. Does that make sense to you, that that's part of what's driving them here? Possibly. With oil higher, then they'll get a slightly kind of larger chunk of revenue from each barrel they export, but their oil now that sanctions are fully in place and there are no waivers will be trading at a, I mean, a heavily discounted price. So they're not getting much from it anyways. I think the main point is to show the sway they hold in the region, that they can constrict oil flow through the Gulf of Oman, particularly the Strait of Hormuz, where a large percentage of, of oil flow goes. Um, so they're showing the impact they can have on the broader market. Kaylin, that's fantastic. Look, um, we want to get your thoughts on Turkey as well, if we may, but we'll do that after the break. So um, look forward to more from you. Thank you. Uh, in the meantime, you can get more from Hadley's exclusive interview with the US envoy to Iran, Brian Hook, and to see why he's calling for an international response, head online to cnbc.com. Uh, on the economic front today, the main item of interest for us, Germany's latest IFO survey. It's expected to show further weakening in current sentiment, as well as a fall in confidence in the outlook for Europe's largest economy. And we'll talk a bit about the automakers at some point on the programme after that profit warning. Uh, coming up, thousands take to the streets of Istanbul to celebrate the election of their new mayor. Stay tuned to find out how the result presents a major blow to President Erdogan. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. Welcome back to Squawk Box, a $50 billion economic package designed by the U.S. to lift the Palestinian and nearby Arab economies has broadly rejected uh, across the Middle East, has broadly been rejected. The economic package is set to be presented in Bahrain tomorrow by President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner. Some U.S. allies have urged the plan be given a chance, but the Palestinian finance minister said having an economic solution before a political solution is, quote, unrealistic and an illusion. Uh, let's get back to the Turkey story. The ruling party has lost Istanbul's mayoral election rerun. Ekrem Imamoglu 
uh, of the Republican People's Party won 54% of the vote, dealing a major blow to the AKP and President Erdogan. The election was Imamoglu's second victory, of course, in just three months after results from the initial vote were scrapped due to claims of voting irregularities. So, Kaylin, uh, people are really talking about this as a, a, a pivotal moment for Turkey. Um, and I read, which I didn't know, that actually the mayoral um, post in Istanbul was the starting point of, of course, Mr. Erdogan himself, who won it, I believe, in 1994. Yes, he's been around for quite some time. <laughs> um, and it is a huge seat of power, of course. Istanbul is really kind of the, the heart. I mean, Ankara is the capital. Istanbul is really, I think, probably the heart of Turkey and certainly of Turkish politics. So um, why are people about. saying this could be devastating blow for the president? Well, the president's share of the vote has gone down steadily, not dramatically, but steadily in recent elections. Um, and the state of the economy is, at this point, quite risky. So we're seeing kind of uh, the, the AKP party generally and Mr. Erdogan struggling to maintain the same hold on, on Turkish politics that they were able to in the past. That said, again, he's been around in politics since 1994 and in charge of the country for quite some time. He won't be willing to step down quickly and clearly has been willing to intervene to stabilize interest rates, make sure that you know interest rates don't go up because they're a threat to the economy, intervening in the health of the economy, uh, appointing kind of family members to key posts in the Ministry of Economy to, to kind of keep things going the way that he wants. If he were to visibly lose the support of the Turkish people, um, in the way that we've seen kind of flashes of this through different elections, this could be a, a really a destabilizing moment because there's no clear option of what comes next. Now, initially we saw the Turkish lira rally uh, on the back of this. Why would markets think this is good news? I mean, is it about restoring faith in the democratic institutions in Turkey? Or what do you think? I think probably it is a kind of a, a vote of confidence for the health of the economy. If there is a different leader elected with kind of a stronger share of the vote and again, a, a clearer mandate for how they're going to structure the economy and, and, and kind of intervene in politics, if you will. Erdogan, again, has been very vocal on the interest rate side at a time when Turkey very much needed to raise interest rates uh, last year, which provoked one of those lira crises. Um, so I think that probably is a hope that there'll be something changing in the policy mix. But I, I don't think that Erdogan would comfortably give up kind of influence and power either. So I wouldn't expect that rally to last all that long. But yes, it's, I would think probably a vote of confidence in, in the future for Turkish politics. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.